Tony O'Reardon, you're an Irish Jesuit. You are back from Sudan. Tell us the story because you're in South Sudan and you're unexpectedly stuck in Limerick. Uh, yes, Pat. Um, so uh, I was coming up to two years in South Sudan at the beginning of March and I had planned to just take a, a two, three week break uh, back in Ireland. So I arrived back in Ireland uh, a few days before the lockdown was announced here. The, the restrictions were announced on the 16th of March. I think I came back on the 12th of March. The situation, as people will remember, uh, the, the virus and concern about the spread of the virus was raising around the globe. When I left South Sudan, uh, there was less concern or the level of concern was quite low. But a few days after my arrival here in Ireland, the authorities in South Sudan decided to uh, restrict and uh, stop flights coming in, international flights coming in. It has meant that I am not able to return to South Sudan at the moment. I'm uh, hibernating, isolating, locking down or spending time with the community here in Limerick. First of all, just to ask about Sudan and COVID-19, what is the situation there? Is it bad? We, we hear very little, actually, from that part of the world. Well, just, just before I talk about COVID in South Sudan, in the last two weeks of February, there were some very positive moves in terms of the peace process. Uh, South Sudan has been in a state of uh, civil war for over six years, and in the last uh, 18 months, it has been edging closer and closer to a peace agreement. And at the end of February, the, the government and the main rival and rebel factions achieved the formation of a unity government, bringing together the president of the country and the main rebel leader. And some people might remember that these two men, President Kier and Makshar, spent some days with Pope Francis as part of their reconciliation process. People might remember that Pope Francis uh, surprised everybody when he went down and kissed the feet of both men. But they, they had managed to form the, the unity government and there was a lot of political changes uh, in rolling out the various parts of that government. That was one change, and, and north the border in Sudan, people will remember that uh, 2018 was a, a year of some progress in the situation there with the overthrow of President Bashir and the military regime. So there, there was some very pro positive progress there, particularly as it affects the refugees who have come into South Sudan amidst the conflict in Sudan, where they were fleeing the problems in Sudan. So the refugees, in, in particularly in Maban, where I have been based, have been thinking more and more about the realistic chances of them returning. So there was a lot of fragile political development in, in the last few months. Now, a lot of that has been put on hold, and it's a very fragile peace that holds there. Do you think the meeting with Pope Francis and what he did and that gesture that was seen around the world, do you think that did play a part in perhaps bringing those two men together into what is, as you say, a fragile agreement? I am told it had a very significant uh, impact on an overall process where a number of international partners, the, the European Union and the US State Department have been very key players as well as other countries in trying to end this conflict but as part of all that the outside players people talk very highly of the the role of pope francis the significance of that was that he invited the two protagonists to spend days together in rome with him and some of the other kind of key players in in their respective factions so it was a time of building trust mm. i think and, and i think um, I, i'm told that both men were 
particularly moved by that gesture of him because it was quite sort they weren't expecting that. And there's an element of this conflict that is deeply personal. A rivalry between these two men and deep distrust between these two men and their respective parties. So it wasn't a smoking gun, but it did add great impetus at, at, a, at a particular time as well where the process was kind of stalled. So I think when the history, hopefully, of the peace of South Sudan it comes to be written, I think uh, the intervention and the role played by Pope Francis will be seen as a significant part of the process. Just some months ago, Francis announced that he was going to, one of his early trips of 2020 would be a visit to South Sudan. So there's kind of high expectation that the visit of Pope Francis as well acted as, again, just one of a number of incentives and a number of factors in ensuring that these two rivals, I guess, worked for the good of the people and he, he did. Pope Francis said some very wise things to them. He said, listen, be builders of a nation and keep your conflicts inside the door in the room and sort that out, but, you know, hold hands for the sake of the nation. And South Sudan is a very, very fractured society and a very fractured country. It needs strong leadership to to make it all pull together So for the, the, the development of the country. And I mean, you were talking about one of the poorest countries on, on the planet, uh, but it has the potential in terms of its resources, in terms of its land mass, in terms of its population, it can move very quickly from a failed state to a nation that can take its its rightful place amongst the, the nations. So will COVID-19 play a role in maybe hampering that, given that there is such an impact worldwide on economics? What's it like there in terms of COVID? So in terms of COVID, obviously people will appreciate I'm here in Ireland, but I'm in, in daily contact with people in South Sudan. The World Health Organization and others have been very, very fearful and greatly concerned of an explosion of COVID over the African continent. Um, and because of poor health systems, like particularly we say in Maban, like talk of ventilators if people were critically ill is not where the, the talk is. It's whether there would be even basic medical care or could you get people in very remote regions into where the one hospital in Maban is. It's not a community that's electrified. So electrical power is reliant on either petrol or diesel generators or solar power. So um, and getting testing and getting even medical treatments. I know there's no particular treatment for COVID, but there are things that could ease people who are critically ill with it. These medicines are either rare or very difficult to move around a country where the infrastructure is exceptionally challenging, particularly in remote areas like Maban. But thankfully, like like in many countries, uh, as we progress now into the month of May, there hasn't been this explosion, thankfully, uh, right across the continent. There, there has been a number of cases, but in South Sudan, for example, the official number of tested cases uh, for people tested positive is limited to six with no reported deaths. Now, the countries in the in, um, bordering South Sudan, like Sudan, has um, a slightly higher number uh, of cases. Uh, they reckon that there are about 300 cases in Sudan with 22 deaths. Similarly, in Uganda, it's less than 100 cases confirmed with no reported death. And Kenya has, again, less than 400 confirmed cases with 14 deaths. Now, I guess like everywhere, there's the figures of, of positive cases depends on the, the level of testing. And it's really, really limited yeah. the number of cases. Like one of our, a friend of mine and part of the JRS team from Kenya, he's been stranded in the capital for the last few weeks because the flights have been cancelled. But there's a possibility of a flight, an exceptional flight for Kenyan nationals to return to Kenya, but they have to get tested before 
they can leave. And he was telling me that in the centre that he went to in the capital was saying that they can do 10 tests a day. That's one zero. So the, the level of testing is very limited. But I guess what we do know is, I mean, I think we would notice if there, was a, if there were deaths and there were people dying or if, uh, the medical services, if they were reporting a significant increase in respiratory illnesses, that doesn't seem to have happened and in, Tony, in, in is the that, sense of a, a surge or a wave. That's very unusual, really. I mean, is that because of social distancing and following the regulations or is it the weather is it the heat or is it you know because it's it seems remarkable given the way this virus has spread through europe and north america yeah i think well i mean virologists and, and epidemiologists and greater experts who know about these things i think are still trying to get a handle on what's happening in Africa. But I, I think a, a very significant factor is, as, as we all know, this virus needs the movement of people and the contact with people to spread it. So particularly poor countries like South Sudan, it, you know, there is not a huge number mm. of people traveling internationally, mm. relatively speaking, to uh, to Western countries. So I think that's one factor. Mm. I, I guess the other thing is, we're at the very early stages of COVID in Africa. You know, it started in China and then Europe became the epicenter. The United States is kind of an epicenter now. They talk about India and, and, and maybe Africa kind of going in that sequence. So it's still perhaps very, very early to say that Africa is out of the woods. And, and now we know that COVID is something that will be with us certainly for the rest of 2020 and into 2021 before we probably have a vaccine or a treatment. So I think it's right to be very concerned about COVID in in Africa, particularly in countries like South Sudan, because the issue with COVID is most people who will guess it would probably recover, like they say 80%, but it's that 20% with underlying conditions and maybe elderly people and the health services just are not there or they're very, 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 very thin on the ground. And so if there was a surge of people with illness at the severe level of COVID, it just isn't the, the level of, uh, of capacity there to, to respond. They are practicing as best they can. They've restricted travel and they have a whole range of restrictions that many of us are familiar with in trying to limit public events. So the schools are closed, all public events and gathering so all, all our education activities we'll say in, in JRS are also suspended they've limited movement between one county and another county I guess all these measures make an impact I think it's too early there there is a kind of a theory being tested that the COVID will not be as resilient in warmer climates but in some of the countries where it has in Asian countries you know the temperatures there would have been pretty similar to some of the African countries so I'm not sure how I mean, I hope, I hope that's a valid theory and it, it proves right. But I think that one needs to be, there's no room for complacency there just by saying, oh, this mm. virus won't take hold in Africa because of uh, the heat. Mm. To end then, as we began, you talked about the fragile peace process there. Do you think that this crisis that the world is facing and that has caused people to galvanise and come together, do you think it will work to the good then in keeping the government stable and focusing people on the most important things in life and the need for stable government and for moving forward? Or do you think that it could work in the opposite direction? I guess this this is, uh, you know, you it, it depends on the, the time of day. You, you, you try to look into the future. I mean, I think both things are possible. 
but like the challenge here is even now covid in in africa like people will sometimes say i need to eat it's fine for you and you're talking about social distance and you can stay in your home and you can go to the kitchen and turn on your tap if you're living someplace like south sudan you have to go to the well that's communal and you might have to walk a couple of kilometers and the well will not be a place where you'll be able to practice social distancing to go and there's no such thing as fridges so you can't do a weekly shop so going out and surviving and getting daily food will be a challenge i think even washing your hands all the time tony we're washing our hands 10 or 20 times a day with plenty of nice soap and water that's probably an issue as well Yes, yeah, so, so the refugees in Maban, they get one bar of soap per household for a month. Uh, and these are people who don't have money. They're in a large camp, so they're getting a food distribution and they're getting a bar of soap per month. Now we're entering the rainy season in South Sudan, so hopefully the water won't be an issue in the immediate months. But, but soap is uh, the danger of COVID and the danger of it in Ireland and, and in developed countries as well as in Africa, but it's always exa- more exacerbated, is it'll put pressure on what they call supply chains or where put pressure on the availability of food and, and goods and what that does to people it can either bring out a generosity and a solidarity mm-hmm. or it can also bring out well i need to look after myself first mm-hmm. and this can create conflict and in a place like africa and south sudan where many of the countries um, uh, have divisions and they have armed groups one could be fearful for how this needs to be managed so again it's fantastic that in ireland and developed countries we've been able to respond with safety nets for people and covid payments you don't have that in a country like south sudan so people's incomes have suddenly reduced even further than what they were so it could put huge pressure south sudan relies enormously on the international community governments and international bodies to fund organizations like JRS and the medical organizations like NSF and and Relief International. And as Western governments face pressure to respond to needs in their own countries, it's a really, I I would appeal to keep a generosity there to protect it, to rake fence the level of support to countries in South Sudan. And for the general public to know that, please keep our hearts open for the voluntary donations to organizations like Trokra, to JRS, and to other groups that are working on the front line in Africa because they don't have the public services and they rely almost exclusively on the international NGOs to roll out public services for their people until these people get on their feet. Particularly in South Sudan, the hope is that by 2022, 23, 24, South Sudan could be a country that is much more on its feet and will need less international help. But right now, it would be tragic if the international community, either through governments or through popular donations, if its level of intervention reduces and it'll cause immense suffering in a country and amongst people that have suffered greatly already. Tony, it's a challenging enough picture. Do you want to be back there? And how are you doing in Limerick and the community in Limerick? Yes, I mean, I... I, I would very much like to, if there was a flight tomorrow morning, uh, apart from shocking my mother with the news that I was going back, <laughs> um, I, would, I would go back in a heartbeat. But strangely enough, I'm able to do, I mean, at the moment, because JRS is not a medical organization, and uh, as a Jesuit and a priest in, in Maban, uh, the greatest thing that yeah, I can do would be to remain probably in the JRS compound, kind of be present there. That You know, we have to realize that despite our impulse to want to go out to help, we risk in doing that of being a person who might 
Um, one, give bad example of not practicing social distancing, but also you might become a vector and a person who transmits the disease. So that's the the, the, the crux of COVID and, and the, the desire to help. The most loving thing is to actually do nothing at all or to do it uh, by by being distant. But that being said here from my, from my room in, in the community in Limerick, uh, through emails and through uh, text messages, I'm able to stay in touch and support people, you know, who are in their families or members of the community in Maban who are trying to spread positive messages because they, they're also fighting myths that, mm. you know, this is something that is only a Western thing or there's a whole lot of myths around it. So supporting people to spread science-based information. So I, there's little things I can do from here. Um, one of the things maybe we're trying to look at is can we mobilize resources to get more soap? I was just uh, going to ask community? you that. Could we, could we do anything about getting soap there, Tony, what were you thinking of? I'm sure lots of people would like to help because it's very concrete and practical. Yeah, so, I mean, again, Jairus is mainly an organisation that does uh, education services and uh, counselling and therapeutic interventions and youth work. So we're not, in South Sudan at least, we're not going to set up to do a massive distribution of soap. So we're talking to the partner that would be set up to do that, would have the, the logistics in place to distribute and I think what we're probably likely to do is say, okay, maybe we can talk to our friends and supporters and identify some of the budget so that we can buy the soap and and you can then distribute it. But it it certainly is one of the the kind of the crucial needs and it could have a a great impact in in preventing the spread. So if people wanted, they could make a donation to Jesuit Refugee Service Ireland and market for the soap fund and get that sent to to the JRS in Sudan? Yes, I, th- I think if they send it maybe to the Irish Jesuit Mission Office, which is the the vehicle here that uh, supports JRS in, in South Sudan, so the Jesuit Mission Office would be a place to make uh, a donation if, if people are in the position to do that. Tony, we wish you all the best and all the Jesuits in Limerick, they're all keeping well? The Jesuits in Limerick are keeping well. I mean, I think Limerick hurlers are obviously thinking that 2020 is the year they'll have uh, lost the All-Ireland because they never got a chance to play. Mm-hmm. Um, but, as a, but as a Cork man, I know that's not true, that this is Cork's year. Um, <laughs> but no, the, the community here, well, it's it's uh, Jim and uh, Joe, and uh, Joe is over 70, so he's been very good at cocooning for the last few weeks. We're lucky here, we live in Dura Doyle, and the garden here around the house is, mm-hmm. uh, is spacious, and then we're close to shops and we can go for a daily walk. And the weather's been Terrific. I remember before I came back from Sudan, everybody was complaining, oh, it's terribly wet in Ireland and we've had a very wet winter. I was kind of dreading coming back to Ireland for all the rain, but I've almost seen as much sunshine in Ireland as I have seen in Africa. So, um, I mean, there's there's probably a challenge in that for people, but I think it's actually better to be living these restrictions with a bit of sunshine. It keeps the mood up and uh, the trees and the the little bit of nature that people can access looks better in the sunshine. I think that, that lifts the spirit, hopefully.